0: Welcome to episode 61 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Jesse, my man, how are you tonight?
0: Hey, brother. What's going on? Not
1: much. What's going on with you?
0: So what's going on is, I'm excited because on this particular episode, I mean, you know how much we love pastors, right, Tony?
1: We do love pastors, and neither of us are pastors.
0: Neither of us are pastors. We love pastors. This is Pastor Appreciation Month, so I am really stoked that joining us is my really great friend and pastor at Nittany Valley Alliance Church in beautiful Mingoville, Ben LeClaire, is hanging out with us tonight. What's going on, brother?
2: Oh, not much, not much. I appreciate being
0: on, though. We're stoked to have you on. We are. Welcome yeah. to the show. And Thank we're stoked you. to get into some affirmations and denials, and, and Ben's going to get in with us, but Tony, let's kick us off with some affirmations. What are you affirming this week?
1: So I am just, my world is rocked by this book that Zondervan sent me. So um, I've talked about the uh, New Studies and dogmatics series that they've put out. The first two volumes were on the Holy Spirit and the Trinity Um by Christopher Holmes and Fred Sanders, respectively. And the third volume is, uh, is about to come out. Um, I got an advanced copy, and it is completely rocking my world. So, the, the title is Sanctification. Um, it's by Michael Allen, who's one of the general editors of the series. And it is, at this point, it's phenomenal. It's probably the best book so far that I've read well, on the subject. It's high praise. Yeah, it's really, really good. So, definitely, uh, when that comes out, pick it up. Once I finish it, I'm going to do a more in depth review on my blog, and we'll probably do an audio review on it as well. So, Look forward to that, but until then, anticipate it uh, with anxiousness.
0: And then you will give that book to me, right? N- no, but <laughs> you you may awkward. borrow it
1: at you may borrow <laughs> it at Christmas if you'd like and read it.
0: All right, deal. So, Ben, what do you what do you think? What what do you got affirming this week?
2: Well, I, I feel like being just north of State College, I should be affirming Penn State uh, heading into Ohio State weekend, but I'm not going to do that because I'm. Are. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not cheering for Ohio, but uh, I'm, I'm not quite uh, Central Pennsylvania yet. They're working on me. I, I'm wearing the Penn State hat tonight, but um, no. And uh, like Jesse, I'm a I'm a huge uh, Red Sox fan, which has been a struggle this week because I I was cheering against the Yankees, um, but I also struggled to cheer for the Astros because Clemens wanted them to uh, be in the World Series, so that was kind of a dilemma. Um, but I I kind of have two affirmations tonight, and they go hand in hand. One is is America's pastime, baseball, uh, and, hey, it's World Series, and uh, looking forward to that. But um, Babylon B, I I need to (laughs) affirm Babylon B tonight because they had an outstanding article yesterday about John Piper commentating the World Series. And uh, one line (laughs) in it was just absolutely brilliant. It says, just think of how much time you would have to waste – in your one and only precious God-given life to learn how to go yard off a lights out pitcher like Keuchel. He said solemnly while waving his arms around like a man (laughs) stranded on a desert island, trying to signal a ship. Um, So that is my, my affirmation tonight, baseball and theology in a brilliant article.
0: Oh man.
1: I don't have any idea what you just said, but it sounds like it's probably
0: hilarious. Yeah, that was beautiful. That was good stuff. So this week, I'm, I'm kind of bridging both a little bit. I'm just affirming the simple pleasure and joy of reading. I was just thinking this week, what a gift. I think we can all agree reading is. Like whether you're reading a street sign or whether you're reading an essay or the scriptures. I was just thinking, man, I am so lucky and fortunate to be able to read, honestly, and then to be able to read good stuff. So I'm just affirming good old-fashioned books and reading. Nice. Yeah. All right. Denial time denial time so
1: this one is very hyper particular to me so maybe no one else can resonate but i think probably some people can i am denying dogs that have to go out at 140 in the morning to go to the bathroom so you might hear it in my voice this is already take two for the evening i'm a little bit wiped (laughs) out because our dog wanted to go out in the middle of the night and then uh, we got outside and the neighbors like all of the lights in the neighbor's house were turned on for some reason so the dog was all freaked out, and when dogs are freaked out, they can't pee. It just—I'm so frazzled. So I love my puppy. I mean, that
0: happens to the best of us.
1: But I want her to sleep, and I want to sleep. So it, I may be a little incoherent tonight, but we'll we'll give our shot.
2: It sounds like a two and a half year old that's potty training. <laughs> not that I've got any experience.
0: <laughs> Does he also get freaked out when the neighbors' lights are on?
2: And he can't pee when he's freaked out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, so what are you denying, Ben?
2: Dude, it's it's good to see your face on Skype here. And so my denial for tonight is long-distance relationships. Oh, um, they are they are completely overrated. And, uh, um, Tony, I, don't, I, I know you are aware, Jesse and I and, and Cindy and Jen, uh, we're in a small group for what, brother? Six? Six years? Seven years? Yeah,
0: something like that. A long time. Where,
2: uh, we got together at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. And uh yeah, we've been going on a about a year and a half now of of not having that and it's it's dearly missed. So yeah, long distance relationships are for the birds.
0: Yeah, I'm down with that. You but you're living that pastoral life now, and that's outstanding.
2: Yeah, we we're we're kicking it, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's I like that. It's one way to say it. How about you, Jesse? So uh, this week, I guess I feel I'm kind of serious this week. And I just want to deny using the Lord's name in vain because I'm just realizing a lot recently just how often that happens, like both online and in conversation. And I was uh, convicted this week of thinking about the proper name of God and how seriously I just need to take that. Even I use it flippantly in terms of like just when I speak out to him or I think about him, or I read it without giving it the reverence. And also, it's just a gut check for me that, in some ways, I'm no better off than somebody else who's actually using it, almost as in kind of like a visceral mm-hmm. reaction to something. Yeah. I don't take the time to pause and respect the name. So, um, yeah, that got really serious. And that's probably a good intro into the topic. You know, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. So
1: before we get started with the topic, I want to give a quick disclaimer for the night. So. We are going to be covering some topics that kind of range over um, overlapping with what's sometimes called the lordship controversy or lordship salvation controversy. So we might use the term lordship salvation or something along those lines. And we're meaning it in kind of the colloquial common sense, which which more right. or less means that um, justification and sanctification are a package deal. Right. God doesn't justify someone and then leave them in their sins. He is faithful to finish the good work that he began in justification. Um, now the lordship controversy itself and lordship salvation that was actually a, like a disagreement among dispensationalists. So from a covenantally reformed perspective, it's kind of like someone else's argument, and we um, we kind of came into it on the end of it and said, well, let's let's actually offer a third way that doesn't involve John MacArthur's answer or you know the other opposing side. So The Theolo- theology gals, which is a show over on the uh, Bible Thumping Wingnut Network did a fabulous episode on it. They get into a lot more details than we're going to. Um, So I would encourage you to go listen to that. We're going to put a link in the show notes. Um, So hopefully we kind of get that out of the way. If you've got an email that you're going to get ready to send about how we're using the term wrong, just remember that I already said we're not using the term the way that you think we're supposed to be using it. So you can just go ahead and hit delete on that email.
0: Uh, Uh, Or you can send it to Tony anyway. Yeah, you can send it
1: to me and I'll delete it for you if you want.
0: (laughs) That's a good introduction because I'm excited to, to have been on and talk about this a little bit more. But I, I really wanted to, like, back it way up and start in the best place possible, which I think, of course, is with Scripture. So let me drop this verse on you guys and then say something to kind of preface and get us into the conversation. So this is Romans ten nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And as Reformed people, there's at least two things that I think we'd all come to affirm really quickly. First is, faith alone is what justifies us. So the thing with that is, we have to make sure that we understand what faith is. Otherwise, it's possible we could actually deceive ourselves into thinking that we have faith when really we do not. And the second thing is, our faith is not, of course, just in some intellectual idea or even in a creed, but it's it's in a person, and that's Jesus Christ. So in order for us to have true faith in Christ... We gotta know something about him. We gotta believe that he is who he says he is. We can actually trust him. So we trust Jesus when we believe that he will accomplish all of his promises, and we show that we love and understand him when we do what is true and right and good through obedience to him. Right. So here's where this kind of meets the road, and here's why I think this is a good conversation, because you guys know, like in the past couple of years, especially the past couple of years, there have been Christians who have taught that it's possible to be in a state of justification, but also to be disobedient to Jesus, that it would be possible to receive Jesus as Savior without submitting to him as Lord. Right. And to be fair, like right at the outset, I would, I would say that these teachers are saying that that situation is not ideal, that they acknowledge a Christian should be obedient to Jesus and manifest the fruit of the Spirit. But there is this sense in which there is this belief that a person can never do those things and still be a real Christian. I think that's probably an attempt to preserve the doctrine of justification by faith alone, to, and that's what motivates that teaching. But with all that said, here's where I want to start. Because rather than start, let's just jump into like theological argumentation or ideas that sometimes people feel like we're just planting our feet in the air. I wanted to get, especially from Ben as a pastor. Ben, like, how would you describe like biblical faith or like saving faith? I mean, what what do those things mean when you're sitting and talking to somebody? When you're when you're in the pulpit, what do those things mean?
2: yeah it's a, it's a complex uh question i mean for, obviously from from a reform perspective from a biblical perspective, I think it's uh pretty basic uh, and I think you covered that with romans ten nine uh if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that that God raised him from the dead and that you will be saved, the issue is that uh communicating that ends up getting lost i think in the message sometimes because people come to the table with so many different perspectives on on what salvation is, and we're using language kind of differently sometimes, and so really having to uh, wade through the waters and, and figure out what kind of theological persuasion people are coming from and trying to translate uh, more of a reform perspective into uh, other language. Um, so, uh, to answer the question though, what what do I think salvation is? I, I think it's just that that uh, we cover in, in Romans uh, ten nine. Uh, a lot of the time when you have people talking about salvation, they throw in like Acts sixteen thirty one, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And, and certainly we believe that. Um, but Romans ten nine, I think embodies it a little bit better because it really begs the question, what is it that we're confessing? um who who is it that we believe in, and certainly uh, we believe in Christ as savior um, being um the anniversary of the Reformation, everything coming up at this point we believe in in salvation through Christ alone by grace alone in in faith alone, um but really, I think the romans ten nine account gets us to what exactly do we believe about christ and the answer to that is exactly how he's revealed himself uh he's revealed himself as our savior he's revealed himself as as our lord he's revealed himself as the reconciler um uh, of us to god restoring that pre-fall state um and so uh, i believing that jesus is lord confessing him uh as lord uh, on a salvific sense i think is us acknowledging everything that it is that he reveals about himself um uh, obviously his his birth and incarnation um, but then exactly what he came to do as well so i i don't know if i'm speaking in too broad a terms but um I, from a bird's eye view i think that's kind of what it is
0: yeah i think that that's i mean that's kind of where my heart is on this and i'm wondering like how do we do you often see that like dichotomy like you were speaking about different kind of translating or transmuting these ideas in such a way that I – I guess I'm kind of asking, does one necessarily lead to the other or can we keep them separate in any way? I mean what do you guys think about that?
2: no i I don't know if you can keep them separate jesus didn't say you can accept me as savior you can accept me as lord with a with as if it had an or in there it's i'm both of these things uh and if you're confessing me as your savior if you're if you're confessing your faith in me you accept the the package of it um and and you have to take it for everything that he revealed himself to be you don't get to pick and choose um and I I'm, this is kind of where the conversation is going later, so I won't jump ahead to that point yet. But
1: Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that, you know, we talked a little bit about how this was really, the lordship controversy was really kind of an internal, um, an intramural debate between dispensationalists. And one of the reasons that that is, is because in a covenant framework, right, a reformed covenantal theological framework, the idea of a, a Lord being separate from a savior is nonsense. Right. Right. The right. only reason that Jesus can be our savior is because he's our Lord. So you, right. there's like the idea that you could separate those and sneak peek, Mike Horton writes a response to the book called Christ the Lord. And that's like the book, right? Jesus is Lord is the covenant Lord and only the covenant Lord can save you. So you can save yourself the $28 if you want the sneak peek. That was what it was. So we have to like keep in intention and remember that, Although we can, we can look to Jesus and not be perfectly obedient servants, in no sense can we ever deny that he is the perfectly sovereign Lord. The second we've denied he's the perfectly sovereign Lord, we've denied that he's sovereign to save as well. So we right. lose, we either have the whole package or we lose the whole package. Um, right. In the dispensational framework, at least in the, the kind of stuff that MacArthur was pushing back against, there was this sort of two-step <clears throat> issue going on, which actually ties into like R. Scott Clark's um critique of piper and jones's position i think his critique lands more squarely on piper than it does on jones because piper denies that covenantal framework so we're not talking about that controversy but all of this kind of circulates and breathes the same air so it's it's really timely that we're talking about this tonight yeah
0: and that and that's why i was curious to start with or not curious but really wanted to start with how you guys understand the nature of saving faith because it seems to me some people can think this is totally disconnected from stuff, but if you start at the root of this, which is understanding, like you said, Ben, who Jesus is and what he came to do, then if we don't get that right, like we've said before, then everything just kind of veers off course and it falls apart. Right. Um, so like, where do you see this kind of this bifurcation like, occurring? Is this something that you run into?
2: I, I can't say I, I run into it. Um, I don't get any kickback at all from from sermons or my teaching. People are on board, but uh practically I think we've we've bifurcated um the roles of Christ in, in our lives often. I, I think we have a whole lot of Uh, people and and, you know i think we're all guilty of it at times talking about the fact that yeah jesus jesus saves he saves from sins he saves saves from the consequences of sins um which includes um physical death and and sickness but um and a whole litany of things but also permanent separation from god he he saves us from that uh the issue is that we also have our pet sins Um, those areas of our life that we don't want to surrender to him that we kind of hold on to and so uh, even though we end up believing that Christ is fulfilling these multiple roles and it's not fair to say hats or or, uh, we're not talking about modalism here (laughs) um, but um, that practically people I think separate Christ into these roles, even if theologically they don't believe that he does have these separate things. That they, they understand right. that he's one and all. So I think that's that's more it than anything is um, that you end up seeing this. Um, separation of the roles of christ for lack of better language in in the practical application of our faith um, and it's something that uh, all congregations all christians struggle with that I, that i struggle with at times as we as we uh try to deny that our, our sins and try to work through our sanctification
0: yeah because i think that we would all probably agree that faith involves more than just like giving assent to certain historical facts And Mm -hmm. I guess for that matter, like James in his book says, says something like you believe that God is one and that's great because even the devils believe that and they shudder at that. So there's like just this body of facts and it's great. You understand that. And there's a lot of people and there's a lot of like spiritual reality that, that also concedes that point. But so let me make this bold statement. I think at least as I've been processing this, and I want to get your guys take on it. So here's my statement is that, faith that saves is a faith that works and if it doesn't work in your life then it doesn't work in your salvation either i mean that that's my contention is that too bold
1: yeah i mean let me just read those section out of james um starting it's chapter 2 verse 14 and following james says what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food And one of you said to them, Go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them the things that needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. uh, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown you foolish person what faith aparts from uh, what faith apart from works is useless and then he goes on to use the example of Abraham. So Calvin when he's looking at this passage, you know, this is kind of like the go-to for Roman Catholics cuz it like specifically explicitly says in um, 24 here you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Right. They go to that and go like, well, your slogan is explicitly denied in the Bible and you claim to follow scripture. But what Calvin, when he comes to this passage, he looks at it and he says, there's three different kinds of faith identified in this passage. Right. So in uh, verse 17, there's a faith that is a dead faith. So there's dead faith that lacks any sort of fruit, any sort of, um, evidence of belief, any sort of godliness that's produced by that faith. And then there's what he calls demonic faith, which is um, the, the kind of uh, faith in terms of belief, the, the assent to a fact that the demons have. And then he goes on to talk about this faith that is a living faith um, that is sort of the same... Um, the analogy that James uses is that this, as the spirit animates the body, so works animate the faith. So those are the three kinds of faith, and it's that third kind of faith that Calvin would point at and say, this is saving faith, is the faith that does right. work. So Luther's phrase is, faith alone saves, but not a faith that isn't. So right. does that kind of get at what you, that, the distinction you're trying to pull out there, Jesse?
0: Yeah, I think so. It's that the faith that saves is a faith that works. And where I'm taking it, maybe like a, even pushing out a little bit more, is if it doesn't actually work in your life, and I guess we could define that a couple of different ways in terms of its manifestation, then I'm kind of making the argument that scripture seem to me very plain that it, it doesn't work in your salvation either. Right. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, we have to make sure that we're careful not to say then that those works save you. Right. So that's right. That's where the co- oh, current no doubt, controversy yeah. lays is. Right. Some people are claiming that people like Piper and Jones are saying that somehow faith actually becomes an, uh, like a, a ground or a cause of your salvation and they're not saying that but it's easy to see how some people would go that direction and say well if if faith apart from works can't save you then works are in some sense salvific and that's not at all we have to stay as right. far away from that as we possibly can right oh
2: yeah agreed agreed but at the same time well while, while those faiths i mean again we get back to the look we're saved through christ alone period um, and that's uh, a tenet that if we sacrifice, then, then Christianity goes by the wayside. It's, it's pointless. Um, however, that saving faith, like James talks about, is uh, one that, that is a fruitful faith, one that, that evidences itself. It's that old cliche like, hey, if they arrested you for being a Christian, uh, would they have enough evidence to, to prove you guilty? Um, and I hate cliches, but really that's what we're, we're talking about here. Um, I, I think of, of Matthew chapter 7, a, a tree that bears good fruit, um, and, and that's going to be manifest in good works that we see in James chapter 2. It, it's going to manifest itself um, in and the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five, it's going to manifest itself in these different ways, um, giving proof to that saving faith, giving proof to uh, the promise of the Holy spirit that we receive uh, when we become a Christian. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I understand the the nuances, of the argument around Lordship, salvation, everything. And, and we are steering away from that. It's not a work of man that saves us. Um, but, but it, the fruit, the, the works, the um, changed um, personality attributes, um, all of those things are going to naturally follow a, a genuine faith in Christ. They have to because the Holy Spirit's indwelling and, and he's, he's actively creating us changing us into the image of Christ.
0: And we, we follow through with that in so many other lesser areas of our life. Like if somebody makes a bold claim about something, either they can dunk a basketball or do something else, like we know that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. I mean, that's the reason right. why we have that phrase. So, I mean, there's something that's logically consistent, but there's also something even within me that wants to bristle at that concept because it's like a test in the sense that uh, – even, even Paul says, like, test to see whether or not you were in the faith. So right. something here for all people, not just you know some that might espouse this particular – Belief. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that what happens here is this pulls us away from like sanctification and discipleship. Not entirely, but it seems to divorce and kind of veer off. Well, if I can get Christ as Savior, and I know that you know I can get my ticket punched, so to speak. I mean, to me, it's like this. Maybe this is unfair, um, but I'm always trying to like one up Tony on his like comparisons (laughs) and metaphors. So here's mine for this week. Oh man. So, So here here's where I'm going with this. I feel like it's like a difference of contracts. So if you buy life insurance, I don't know if you guys are rocking some serious life insurance right now, but if you sign a contract for life insurance, after you sign that sucker, all you have to do is wait to die. That's it. (laughs) But if you sign like a contract um, to go along with Ben's affirmation, like if you sign a contract to play baseball, then that's where all the hard work starts. Like you prove that you're a baseball player. You prove that you're worthy of the contract in a way not to earn it. That's already been given to you. This is where the metaphor just starts to break down. But that's when the work starts you work out you get in the cage hit the ball you do all these things that manifest or provide the fruit so to speak of the fact that you've got a baseball contract you're playing the game you're on the field you're putting in the effort so it's, it's like these difference of contracts and I, you know I'm, I'm trying to understand how we've gotten so far to say that we we don't need to get in the field so to speak you know
1: yeah yeah i mean i think a lot of this Sometimes I'm kind of hard on like Billy Graham and, and that whole movement, but I think that this, that's kind of like the origin of this, right? Come up front, sign your card, um, right? Bring, make sure you bring it with you to heaven because that's your ticket to get in is the the fact that you, you sign the back of this card. And I think that that sort of like minimum expectation, you know, this is just the first step of being a Christian, but that you only have to take that step. Um, you know, there are other steps that you might want to take, and they'll they'll come with extra benefits and blessings. And, you know, you, you'll be a better Christian if you do this or if you have this experience. But this first step, that's the only step that matters, that really matters in the long run. Um, that all goes back to, like, the Billy Graham Crusades and Charles Finney and that whole revivalism movement that is so prominent in American evangelicalism. That I think, you know, kind of this robust um, salvation is a comprehensive a comprehensive package and a, a comprehensive change in the entire person at the point of salvation, the point right of on. salvation in life that is so foreign to what most uh, American evangelicals think Christianity is that it sounds, it sounds almost like works righteousness that wait a second, you're saying that I actually have to be obedient to God too. That no, that doesn't sound like that doesn't sound like that right. alone. That sounds right. like, that sounds like Roman Catholic theology. Right. And you know, that's, I, that's like a major detriment, and I think that's why we see a lot of people kind of emptying out of the church in this in this era.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, is that – like I'm, I'm curious for your perspective, Ben, on that kind of thing. Like how do you see – especially from the pastoral perspective, like discipleship in lordship salvation, how do you see those things kind of mixing in the church? Uh,
2: I, again, I, I don't think that they're uh, necessarily uh, separable. I, the, they go hand in hand. Um, the verse that comes to mind, it's really the key verse of the Christian Missionary Alliance that I'm, that I'm a pastor within, and um, ordination pending, so we'll see how all this stuff goes. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's really the Great Commission, go therefore into and, um, and, and all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to obey all that, that we've been instructed, all that Christ has instructed us. Um, and so the, I think it goes, and it's really back to the whole what comes first, the chicken or the egg kind of argument, um, from, from the pulpit in our personal interactions, in our Sunday school classes, if, if your churches still have that model, um, going through and being very clear about what Scripture says about salvation. Um, and, and before you even get to that, who does the Bible say Christ is? And when we're teaching that faithfully, then talking about what salvation means. It's accepting Christ for all that he says he is and understanding that he is who he is, says he is, um, that that he's indeed truthful about who he is. Uh, and right. after after you end up leading that, OK, now, what does that require of us? What does that look like? Um, and, and walking through, hey, you know what? Um, when you become a Christian, you're infilled with the with the spirit. Um, that's promised in John 14. It's exemplified in in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Um, And and what role does he have? And it's part of our sanctification. Um, And and so what are the things that Christ has taught us to do? Okay, love mercy, walk humbly, Um, love your brother as yourself. And again, not for works for saving uh, us, not um, as if they could save us, but as... um, Examples as evidence of our faith, um, pointing to verses like John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so what does that look like? And communicating it uh, appropriately that, hey, we're not preaching a works-based faith here. Um, But as you're drawing closer to Christ, um as your love for him grows stronger and stronger in your sanctification it's going to naturally manifest itself in in these ways um and you're going to be more patient you're going to be more kind and caring and, and, and loving and merciful and you're going to have better control of your tongue and um and you're going to have it manifest all these things oh and by the way uh, as you go and as you, too, fulfill the Great Commission and, and spread the gospel, then, then this is what you're communicating as well. Um, and so really making that kind of cyclic um, discussion, cyclic pattern with, within the church of, of being faithful to the teachings of Christ, being faithful to the teaching of salvation, and, and having people continue to communicate is, that, that is, is the approach that I, I try to take with it. Um, I'm not sure I even answered your question, brother. <laughs>
0: <I> <laughs> just got <laughs> this
2: is what happens when you put a pastor on and,
0: in front of a microphone. Yeah, it's in all the, good. It's buddy, God, a microphone. Preach it. Yeah. Ju- preach it. We're, ha- we're having some church. Um, I w- it re- That reminds me that probably by some modern evangelical standards, Jesus would, would be like a horrible evangelist <laughs> Yeah. because kind of what were you t- Saying Tony. And then what Ben just said, Jesus everywhere is saying to people, like, I know you're I know you think it's like that old do you remember that old MTV show, like you think you know, but you have no idea. What was that? Like true life or real life or something? Real life. I don't know. I, I know no if
2: I admit to that, I've got to admit to not being as sanctified as uh, as I'd <laughs> like to be. So
0: uh, I'll I'll take the hit for the team. But there was so much about that show that was like You think you know, you think you're down with this, but you don't have a real idea. And that's why this expose is necessary. And basically, I mean, how many times does Jesus do that in the Gospels where where somebody comes up and is like, listen, he's like, you got to count the cost. You've got to count the cost. And it's it seems like there wouldn't be a cost. You wouldn't be saying that if there wasn't some kind of authority that he actually had over your life. And the scripture that I think of is Luke 14. So let me just read a couple of verses Mm -hmm. real quick. So now great multitudes were going along with him. That is Jesus. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And uh, that's a hard passage. Like like if you hear that, if you're and it doesn't bother you, then you need to like stop your car right now or whatever you're doing and think about that for a second because that really bothers me. And Jesus is demanding to, like, be the center of attention, to be the object of complete loyalty, which is, like, straight-up blasphemy, if that's anybody else. So, I don't know. Like, my observation is, like, the scriptures seem abundantly clear. Like, you guys are saying, like, this is what Jesus wants and what he demands. When he calls a man, he's calling him entirely. And, like, your commitment and loyalty should surpass even, like, the love you have for your family or your own life. I mean, this is, like, crazy, right? I mean, it's radical.
1: Yeah. So maybe, maybe we should back up just, just a step and kind of contrast what the other kind of the other option from what we're talking about would be.
0: No, we're not so, backing up, Tony. We're just going for, <laughs> we're going
1: to, we're going to back up. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to insert a sound effect of, of a backing up truck. I'm not, actually. I
0: wish you would that. in our, our really vast post-production.
1: So there, there are some theological camps, um, and that they, they kind of exist all across denominations. It's not necessarily one denomination or not. Um, but there are some theological camps that kind of have two tiers of the Christian experience. And because of that, they create kind of two tiers of Christians. So there's, there's the people that are, that are um, submitted to Jesus as savior. Right. And then there's the people that have had sort of like the super Christian experience. So in like Pentecostal circles, it's the baptism of the Holy spirit, right? The second blessing. So there's the people who they'll, they're saved. They're going to get to heaven. um, But they haven't, they haven't manifested that in tongues, or they haven't experienced the blessings of the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right um, in the original Lordship controversy, salvation. I think this will probably transition us into maybe a more direct discussion of where you two are at in terms of your church life right now. There was this concept of the crisis moment, right? So you had you had your uh, kind of your salvation experience where you went to a Billy Graham crusade, or you went to. Um, some sort of evangelistic outreach, a revival of some sort, and you, you know, you said your prayer, you sang "Here I Am," and you, or you sang "I've decided to follow Jesus," or "Just as I am," or whatever the hymn was that brought you to tears, and you went forward and you prayed your prayer, and then sometime later in life, um, if you're depending on which tradition, if you're lucky or if you're really really diligent and you sort of manufacture it yourself, there's a crisis point, some sort of change that forces you to kind of take the next step in your faith. And that's where you submit to Jesus as Lord. So I know that that's, you know, different theological traditions have different understanding of that. And even within the reformed tradition, um, there is sometimes a sense of like, there's the regular Christians and then there's like the super Christians. So that's, that's very different than what we're presenting as kind of like a salvation of the whole person. But wait, I know you guys have had more direct experience with it in the CMA than I have in, you know, an independent Baptist church in New Hampshire. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Ben, have you run into that in CMA at all?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a central aspect of, of Alliance Doctrine um, is this whole crisis moment. Um, and I'm, I'm going to fail ordination because I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and Google it right now. <laughs> um but I, I want the uh, the language that they use um, but yeah I mean the the whole idea of crisis point sanctification at least with the founder of of the Christian missionary Alliance with with a B Simpson was actually a, a direct response to what we're talking about here um, he had grown up within the Presbyterian Church and was part of a church that um, And, look, I'm not a historian, so I'm going to get some details wrong here. Um, But, basically, he was part of a church that was really preaching this whole fire insurance salvation. You've declared Christ as Savior, now you can go do what you want. Uh, And that concerned him. Um, and so he really kind of uh, bought into the whole Keswick uh, argument of of this crisis point sanctification, this higher higher life sanctification, hanging out with the likes of, of Moody and friends. Um, but the whole idea of of crisis moment is is really central. And of course, I'm not finding what what I need here. Um, but basically, what the alliance position on it is is that you become a Christian with really that Acts sixteen thirty one discussion. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Um, not wanting to confuse that that works at all save us. That, that it's solely the work of Christ that saves us. I mean, we, we sing hymns, Jesus only, Jesus always, um, and, and I appreciate the sentiment that that that, that brings because it keeps us focused and central. Um, but there's a Really the idea that we're still called to this um, deeper life, this higher life, if you will. And and the language that the Alliance uses is this crisis moment sanctification. And the way that they would define that is really a um, post-conversion, one instant in time, whole life surrender to the power and work of Christ. Um, And where they kind of get that from is, is really the discussion in uh, Corinthians and Hebrews, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, but uh, starting in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infinites in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians and, and the writer of Hebrews is really bucking against this, hey, you guys aren't where you need to be. Um, and so they've grasped onto verses like that to talk about look we're still called to something more uh, we're called to have um, Christ as Lord of our life and for our life to follow him to be molded into his image and to uh, work through our faith with, with fear and trembling so that we're at the point of of, uh, of glorification when when he calls us home and again, qualifying that that it's not our work that it's still the work of the spirit within our life and so that's something i really appreciate about the alliance as well is that um, this is a a active recognition about the fact that we can't sanctify ourselves Uh, apart from christ Mm -hmm. we can do nothing john john chapter 15 verse 5 right um yeah apart from christ we can do nothing um and so uh, the maybe some of the instances that they'd talk about is really kind of where it hits the fan. They're not saying that, okay, 10 years has to pass from the time you um, believe in Christ until you hit this crisis point. Uh, they would point to the Apostle Paul uh, being uh, encountering the glory of, of Christ and being knocked off his horse is really his crisis moment. That's the point he got it, and his, his conversion and this crisis were nearly simultaneous. Um, Peter, maybe they would draw a different distinction peter had been walking with jesus for three years um kind of he was following him he understood him he called him teacher he called him lord um but really where it kind of the the meat of his conversion they would argue would probably be uh, at his restoration um peter who do you say that i am i say that i say that you're lord okay then go feed my sheep um, and so kind of experientially um, yeah, that maybe that's the word um, it's experientially based. Um, I, I'll let you guys hop in if you want. I can continue.
0: I, I think that's helpful because this is one those two words crisis point. People can mean different things by them and sometimes they're more extreme views than others. But for me, it does embody this sensibility that. All of the Christian life is one in which you are constantly being sanctified and reformed. And I think there's a desire to want to express that at some points in our life, we do have an experience that tends to confirm that God in a drastic way is doing that work. But other times, you know, like if we're regular tenders of church and we're celebrating uh, the communion on the Lord's Day, if we're being a part of the family of God, like how wonderful to have all these kind of quote unquote normal experiences heap up for us and kind of accumulate And then sometimes God does something really dramatic in our lives, as he did in the examples that you gave there. So it's, I I mean, the Christ point is kind of like, it sits on the edge. Like it can be, I've heard it used in wonderful ways of you just describing to really emphasize we cannot do anything except by Christ's power. But also it can lead into this other place, which is this idea of like carnal Christianity, which I'm, I'm guessing that's something you guys have heard of before, I'm guessing, right?
1: Right. Yeah, and so this is all kind of circulating around – it's interesting if you were to look at the history of these different things, right? So um, Simpson was buddies with Moody, and Moody was kind of like – was sort of in the same circles as a lot of the dispensationalists. And it was really out of dispensationalism that this lordship, salvation, controversy came. Well, this theology that is sort of embodied in the CMA crisis point theology – it's sort of like a parallel trajectory that developed, sort of in a different path, um, but ends up in a lot of the same places. Right. But what I what I really pulled out of what you said there, Ben, is these are not people who are trying to destroy the flock. They're not trying to deceive right. Christ's sheep. They're they're trying to come to the Bible and make terms, you know, make sense of what it says and apply that to life. Right. But what what I think is really kind of um, can be dangerous about this is that the you know the vast majority of christians throughout history they they've just lived like kind of ho hum average ordinary lives right i never had the glory of the lord appeared when i was walking to work in the morning and knock me on my butt and give me a special mission and you know tell me the gospel directly so so we we look at these passages where the apostles have this and then we make them normative for a christian right. life and that, that can do some damage Right. Because that's just not the experience that most Christians have. So I, maybe Jesse, what, you know, what ways have you seen this as a sort of a congregation member in a CMA church? Um, and I, I'm not harping on the CMA. I, I visited your CMA church when I was there in August and I loved it. I thought it was great. So CMA is a great denomination. Don't anyone listening to this, don't take as yeah, right like a bash on the CMA. Right oh, um, no, not but at the, all. Yeah. This theology kind of embodies a sort of, I think, potentially an issue in the broader evangelical world. So what do you see as a congregation member that's having this preached to you week in and week out in more or less ways? uh, How does that kind of impact your experience in, in the church, Jesse?
0: Well, I think kind of like you've already said, it is a wonderful reminder that there is a work that we ought to expect of God in the lives of those who are obedient to him, that we should not be satisfied. and It's kind of a reminder to always be searching and always be seeking after sanctification by God's power in your life, not to be stable, not to be steady. And to take faithful risks. So I think it's a wonderful reminder, um, and and for me that's basically how I've interpreted it because it is a powerful. It's to have this before you is always to understand that the power of God is transformative. That nothing remains the same when mm-hmm. Jesus draws close, and that as Paul says, that you know God, it's God's will will to work in your life as He sees fit, and at the same time we do in a miraculous way bear some responsibility for being a part of that work. But it, it's mainly this idea of continuing surrender. So that that experience is like new to me, that kind of knowledge, that kind of um, like approach, a consistent marinating in that kind of idea. But it has been helpful because it is a great reminder that that's something that I need to be seeking out, especially surrender. Like I, I'm not sure how much in our Christian lives we think when we get up How am I surrendering to Jesus Christ today? I mean, in every little thing, if he really cares, if he's really the center, if he's saying, you love yourself way too much, and you love your family more than you love me, you got to give that up. I mean, how many of us are having that put before us on the Lord's Day regularly? So I think that's like a great strength of of what that is. Um, I mean, what what would you say, Ben? Yeah, I, I
2: mean what what i appreciate about it is just the fact that it again it's drawing us back to the the power and work of the holy spirit because see bottom line i'm a good new englander i um and even though i don't believe in a workspace based faith that's kind of how we carry ourselves up in new england right um right. you end up uh working hard you you pull your uh, self up by your own bootstraps and, and and you you're self-made man that's kind of the mentality that i grew up in um and so that that kind of bleeds into our faith and so what i appreciate about uh this crisis moment is the fact that um our and not even crisis moment it's the really the alliance's um the perspective on as you said is the continual surrender is denying ourselves and picking up our, our cross and it's at the forefront um Admittedly, it was a hard discussion for me, though, uh, when I when we first came into the alliance, because it's it's language that I had never been exposed to. Um, this whole crisis moment uh, language, higher life theology. So I, I've had a quite the struggle to go through um, and and really align this with what I understand the Bible to be preaching. And, and so where I've come with this. Is I I, don't, I can't use the same language. Um, I don't I don't understand and, and appreciate the language the way uh, others that have been raised in the denomination might uh, understand and appreciate it. Uh, but it's at the same time a very real reality because look, when when I became a Christian, I declared Christ as or I acknowledged Christ as my Savior. I, I acknowledged Him as uh, my Lord. But really, when I first became a Christian, how much did I understand that? Uh, I knew that he was Lord of my life, but I'd have no practical understanding about how that actually plays itself out. Um, But I do remember distinct points in my life where that proverbial light bulb goes off. And you're like, oh, so this is what it means to be a Christian Um, with the Holy Spirit's conviction, with with um, him. Opening up our eyes to Scripture and the truth that's in Scripture, um, and by, based on our own experience, um, look. This these are quote unquote crisis points. Um, maybe we don't like the word crisis. Maybe maybe I, as growing up a good Baptist kid, we prefer the whole idea of rededication of our life. Right? How many times have we done that as believers? I've um, gone up right. and, hey, I've rededicated my life. That's really kind of what they're talking about here um, and and saying, hey, look, here here's this big revelation, uh, not in the biblical sense of the term, but my own personal understanding of of where the Spirit's leading me in my life and, and what Scripture means and the impact that it has on my life, and that has to change me. And so, how do I process that? That's what they're referring to as crisis points are, and and that's how I've been able to reconcile this, uh, my own experience to, um, to, to alliance doctrine, and and frankly, marrying up alliance doctrine to what I understand the Bible to be preaching. Would I use the same language? No, um, but I, I at least understand and appreciate the direction they're coming from. So
1: maybe yeah, I,
0: I think that's a good that's my, a good summary.
1: So here's my take kind of as an outsider looking in, right? Because I, I, um, I grew up in sort of like generally evangelical Christianity after I became a Christian and this theology was never explicit, but you know, right. you would have, um, you would have every summer, you'd go to summer camp and you'd hear the same talk from your youth pastor about how you got to get serious about your faith. Yeah.
2: Right? You,
1: you, you confessed your you trust in Jesus, but you got to get serious about your And so this is, you know, Jesse talks about wanting to one up me on the analogies. So the the Rugged Marriage podcast, the Rugged Marriage podcast is closing down uh, shop. So this one is for that. Um, The way that I look at that kind of theology, the you know, you can become a Christian and and it's okay if you sort of like you just sort of don't change your life, but you trust Jesus. But if you really want to get serious, you're going to do this. It would be like going through your wedding day. And then after, you know, all the guests are ready to go and all of the, all of the events are done, you just go back to your separate rooms, right? That's, that's carnal Christianity. Yeah. And so, so there right. are, there are people that are saying like, it's okay to never consummate the relationship. And for, for the Christian, the consummation of our relationship with Christ, and I'm not trying to be crass, but the consummation of our union with Christ, there's a reason there's bridal language in the scripture, mm-hmm. is a submission and obedience to Christ. So that union with right. Christ happens through faith alone, but it's never that faith that is alone. So if you are a Christian who wants to have faith in Christ, but not, tr- but not be obedient to Christ, it's like getting married and then going back to your separate rooms and never getting to the honeymoon, never getting to the good part of marriage in terms of the, all of the benefits. I'm not just talking about sex, right? I don't want people to think I'm just talking about that. But that's part of it right that's part of being married is enjoying everything god has for you in marriage that is um all of the benefits of you know physical relationships all of the emotional benefits carnal christianity is like all you do is the wedding and then then nothing else so you're on on paper you're married but if you looked at your life no one would think you are to me that just doesn't make any sense But where I think is what I think is really strong about what you guys are talking about is this sense that the Christian life is not over at justification, right? We don't graduate from the gospel; we press into the gospel. But God has prepared good works for us to walk in, and so this kind of crisis point theology, where, where I think it may be a little bit weak, that it sort of it sort of delineates those two things. The emphasis on sort of the full Christian life is there i guess where right. i might disagree is i would say there's no such thing as less than the full christian life it's a binary option either right. you're a christian Correct. and you have the full christian life or you're not a christian you can't be a disobedient christian that just doesn't make any sense does that i mean is that like i said that was that was for the rugged marriage guys i don't know if they listen to my show but um, they had a long-standing podcast and i wanted to at least uh, pay a little bit of homage to them
2: yeah i'm gonna but- edit
1: that all out yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, let me respond in a couple different ways. First, uh, preparing for tonight, I did end up – I went to the appropriate place so if we're talking about the Alliance's perspective and at least my understanding of the crisis um, moment, um, the, the crisis point sanctification. And this is something that uh, Reverend Dr. John Stumbo, he's the president of the Christian Missionary Alliance, has on our webpage. It says, all who follow Christ must – and the emphasis is mine – come to a place where we understand our complete need of Christ's lordship in our lives. We've already come to him for the forgiveness of our sins. We've admitted to him our complete inability to achieve salvation on our own. We acknowledge that without him, we cannot enter heaven. Now we come to Jesus with an even deeper awareness of our own inability. We, we need him for the power to overcome sin. We realize that we're unable to live a holy life, to be sanctified on our own. We cannot experience this life he has for us on earth. His kingdom come. He will uh, His will will be done in our lives now without his inner or will not be done in our lives now without his intervening power. This is a crisis and surrender and submission. Now, the, I, I appreciate that because I agree wholeheartedly with what he's saying there. We cannot walk this Christian life. We cannot sanctify ourselves apart from the work of Christ where I take issue with it take umbrage with it is isn't with the concept as a whole but it's the the differentiation between this crisis point sanctification and our progressive sanctification right um and and really if you were to draw a straight line and i i know that this is just on voice and there's no uh, i can't put a whiteboard up here um but really this higher life theology this crisis point sanctification would argue that there's a point of conversion um and then you travel flat line up until this crisis point and then be at this crisis point where you have this whole life surrender post conversion whole life surrender is where your progressive sanctification begins and sometimes that's more rapid or, or um, um, more fruitful than other times sometimes it's more gradual sometimes you have some backsliding in the peaks and valleys like a finance chart going on um, or the stocks and everything. But I don't necessarily take issue with this whole crisis moment. The issue that I take is when uh, people try to delay this progressive sanctification. If we change the language and, and rearrange the cards here, I'm okay with it. Because John 14 says, Look, when, when I leave, you're going to get the Holy Spirit in me. And, and Romans makes it very clear Romans 8 9. Look, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're not a Christian. Period. Right. Um, great. So, our progressive sanctification has to start at the point of our conversion. Because if it doesn't, then we risk we risk walking a heretical line. Either A, the Spirit's really not in us, which we've already disproven based on Christ's own claims and, and it, having it clarified in Romans chapter 8. Or He's in us, but he's not acting. He's inactive. He's sedentary, which is borderline blasphemy, if not blasphemy. That's saying that the Spirit's in us, but not doing a thing in our lives. So if our progressive sanctification starts on day one of our Christianity, then I think there's going to be these peaks in our, uh, in our sanctification where, we, you know what, we have these crisis moments where we're like, hey, look, this is really where the rubber hits the road. We understand this is what our faith requires. And do you have a spike in your progressive sanctification? Maybe, if, if there's a way to even chart that. Um, but for me, the whole argument comes down about what comes first. Is it progressive sanctification that has crises in it, or is it a crisis point that somehow triggers our, our progressive sanctification? And that's the only portion that I really have a theological issue with. Um, that is if it's a separate and distinct event. Now, would I argue, um, at least in Alliance perspective, what they mean by crisis point is this declaration that, that Christ is Lord of your life. You know what? I would argue that that's part of your, the whole transaction of salvation. Right. Um, Granted, I don't understand its fullness of of all that it means for here until kingdom come. But, yeah, I would argue that that's actually part of the transaction. So that's occurring. That crisis point needs to be occurring then. Uh, And our progressive sanctification starts. um, And and you know what? You end up running into these mini crises. Um, And and I don't know. I mean, it's probably a struggle here if people aren't familiar with this language to even understand what what i'm talking about the rambling that i'm doing because uh, frankly i've had to weed through it with a whole bunch of different filters at this point growing up in a baptist church and then going to an e-free church and then um going to a wesleyan seminary and and now in uh in in the alliance um anyway uh, does that make sense
0: (laughs) i think so i mean that's the good stuff yeah it, it does and that's why i said like way earlier on before we back that thing up so to speak that um <laughs> jesus by modern standards would probably make a really poor evangelist because so many times at least twice well he gives that metaphor this 2 metaphor of the dude building the tower and then the, the king going to battle and he says make sure you have enough stones make sure you have enough men because the question he poses is whether they both have enough resources to complete what they started mm-hmm. and it's not as if jesus says to us listen, you better have enough spiritual wherewithal before we do this thing. He's saying, will you surrender and realize that you have no spiritual wherewithal, but that you're right. in it to trust in me completely? Right. So I agree the language is strange because I think the strength of it is to articulate a point that sometimes this is dramatic, but all the time God is working. Where there is that gap is, like Tony, you were saying, we can get this where there's like two levels here. Like, have you had your moment? Right. Like, it would be weird to go ask somebody, like, have you had your moment? Um, um because God is always working. So somewhere in the midst of all this, there's both like a good challenge and at the same time, like a good reminder that we ought to get that fruit through Christ. I mean, that's the important thing. Yeah.
1: It strikes me in, in sort of a paradoxical way that this perspective, it, it's like it takes sanctification seriously. Yeah, right. But it does it in a way that actually kind of undercuts sanctification as a necessary part of being a christian and i don't mean that in like a pejorative way but it it wants to say that sanctuary is or uh, sanctification is important but not essential to the christian life in that you can be a christian for a a period of time and experience no sanctification well you know the, the westminster confession where right i'm i'm a confessional guy the Westminster Confession of Faith in the chapter on sanctification says sanctification is throughout the whole man. Right. So sanctification happens at the point of conversion and it is a, a comprehensive sanctification. And and it's you know, it goes on and talks about how you know the corruption of the flesh remains and so there's strength from the Holy Spirit to overcome. So it's it's not saying like we're utterly completely made holy instantly, but it's saying that the process of sanctification kicks off at the same point as justification and both of those are dual benefits from union of christ it's not as though um it's kind of like these milestones it's you're not climbing peaks here you're not you you don't climb the justification peak and then walk around on the vista for a little bit and then climb up to the sanctification peak and and walk around there and then finally you climb up to the you know glorification peak when you die which is a weird place to climb to i guess so I, I, I'm I'm a little bit at a loss in terms of like, what do you even do with this? But what what I think has been really helpful for me is this puts some language around what I think is a really common experience for um, guys who are kind of in, in our age range, right? The right. late 20s, early 30s range, people who grew up with things like Acquire the Fire and Summer Camp and big youth groups and stuff like that in evangelicalism is we have this real sense of like, well – you go to the conference in January and you give your life to Jesus. And then you go to summer camp in uh, July, and that's when you get serious about your faith. And that's your crisis point. Now, we never use right. that language. But like I said, I can't count the number of times that my youth pastor said in one form or another, are you going to be serious about your faith? Right. Well, if you're not serious about your faith, then what kind of faith is it? And James would say it's a dead faith. It's not. It's no faith at all. If you're not actually serious, if you're not actually producing fruit, then you're a dead tree. You're either a living tree that produces fruit or you're a dead tree that doesn't. There's no such thing as like a half-dead tree that sort of is there but doesn't produce fruit. It's dead or it's alive. I I think
2: it's important that we – I I agree with you wholeheartedly. At the same time, we do have the biblical imagery about needing pruning occasionally. And I really think that's kind of what they're trying to embrace it is uh, understanding the original commitment that, that we made and then really the the spirit working to bring us to this point uh, of crisis and and yes the order matters it matters significantly um, but I, I don't think they disagree with with the discussion at all. Um, With that said, I mean, you guys you guys were raising some serious concerns about um, what happens if you play this thing out. And I think that's a one major concern is that we end up um, bifurcating the Christian walk. You can be this carnal Christian or you can be these serious Christians. Uh, And and frankly, the concern for me out of that um, is really the discussion in First Peter, the you are a priesthood of believers. Well, is that true of a carnal Christian? Um, and, and if that's not if they can't say that, they, hey, Christ is Lord of their life, then I have a hard time saying that they're part of the priesthood of this all believers thing. And so really that bifurcation, the, the two tier system of Christianity, I think is a dangerous end because it, it compromises the discussion in first Peter two. It, it really calls into question the imagery uh, that we have in, in heaven um, in, in Revelation chapter five. Um, with with the whole discussion about look I made you a kingdom of priests you're all here before me um, but there's that's not just the that's really not the only possible downfall here um I've, i was listening to your guys podcast I listened to the one that you had recommended um I apologize I can't remember their name uh, they were just talking about the lordship controversy um and, and really the the the, the lordship um, salvation controversy is, if it's misapplied, it argues that our works are indeed saving us. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I understand the, the issue there. Um, th- if you carry this to its necessary end, or and not even necessary, and if you carry it to an extreme end, one of the arguments that we end up having is that we're giving people a false assurance of their salvation. Right. Um, that's, that's a danger. Um, and the, the other aspect is kind of where some of your more uh, charismatic churches end up going. Uh, there's a danger in overemphasizing our personal experience over sound biblical doctrine. Um, and, and we need to be careful not to look at Scripture, not to look at biblical doctrine uh, through the eyes of our experience. We need to interpret our experience through the through the eyes of Scripture. And so how do we bring those two things uh in conjunction with one another those are all concerns that that come out of this higher life uh, crisis moment sanctification discussion um and we need to be wary of it at the same time there's a whole bunch of benefits to it as well that take very seriously the role and power of the holy spirit in our sanctification and our need to be sanctified not to be simply satisfied uh with with this jesus is my savior and now i can go and live however i want argument
0: Right right on yeah, at the very least, I think what this does is this conversation is great because it should compel us to to look at what Paul says to the Corinthians. And as he kind of stares them down, as it were, in his letter, I'm just thinking of these words in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So that's like a hard thing for anybody to hear even the most quote-unquote seasoned Christian. But this is a difficult thing to articulate, that balance of responsibility and the work of Christ and how we really submit to him. And so that just kind of hits me hard after after talking to you guys, that this is something that we should all be doing, is testing ourselves to see if we are in the faith, to see if we are continually giving ourselves over the lordship of Christ that is in a real way. I mean, I think that's important.
1: All right. Well, Ben, this has been a great conversation, and I'm so thankful that you came on the show. We'll have to get you back on another time um, For sure. after your ordination or after you uh, whatever, I guess. Um, <laughs> hopefully, we didn't get you in too much trouble tonight.
2: I think but, we'll be over right. um,
1: We really appreciate you coming on. I think this has been a really important topic, and I think it adds some flavor to some of the controversies and discussions that have been going on. Um, from a pastoral angle that even though it's been pastors that have been involved in the discussion, a pastoral angle that hasn't really come about. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're going to roll out here, but until next time honor everyone.
2: Love the Brotherhood.